Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Strong Cast. We have two leading physicians to talk about the opioid crisis. Uh, the fact, are you addicted to pain? Or have, a, have we been dumbed down so much that the body does not heal until we think of the aeroceptor? If you're sniffing, if you get a cut, if you get a bruise, you just don't want to go through the body healing itself, and you just need some kind of drug to stop the pain. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about mental illness and psych psychedelic drugs with our very special guest on this edition of The Strong Cats. You don't want to miss this conversation on how to kick the opioid crisis from prescription drugs on. I'm Armstrong Williams. Join us. You know, it's, a, it's an easy thing to talk about marijuana, cocaine, heroin, and the addictions that are sexy and make the headlines. But one of the things that we don't talk about in the opioid crisis is how people go to the dentists and their physicians and they get these prescription drugs and they become really strung out and addicted, whether it's outside, whether it's over prescription. And the world, especially in the United States, is wondering what in the world can we do to get the opioid crisis under control? Because so many people are dying senseless deaths. Should the government be involved? Should the government regulate um, these prescription drugs? How, how much of a role should the government play? Are our physicians capable of doing it themselves? And what kind of training do physicians have to, to address this growing problem in our society. We're going to talk about this today on this edition of The Strong Cast with your host, Armstrong Williams. Welcome to the broadcast. We've invited two um, very phenomenal physicians um, to talk about this issue, the opioid crisis. Dr. Claudia C. Kolka is a dentist, um, DOS, MPH, dentist, and toxicologist. Dr. Nidraj Gandotra is chief medical officer for the Delphi Behavior Health Group. You know, even before we get to the, the issue of government intervention uh, and how do we at least minimize the addictions and the, and the number of people who die as a result, because you're not going to stop it. That's just not going to happen. Who has the greatest role? Who plays the greatest role uh, in having the impact to slow down uh, the addiction that just seems to be engulfing this country? Um, I think that there are multi, um, multi-factorial parties that contribute to the uh, discussion tables, um, including certainly the physicians, the institutions, the academic institutions, um, as well as the industry, biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, all the uh, individual players that have an impact on this, and including the business sector. It's interesting you did not mention the patient. The patient does play a role in terms of compliance, and that is uh, within the patient-doctor privilege relationship. So um, I see that as a, uh, as a um, participation in that. Is the, is the patient a victim in this process? I don't believe that the patient is a victim from a perspective. The patient has their right to say yes or no to whatever um, expert opinion is being rendered. But, uh, but it's different making a decision and pain, uh, and, and the pain somehow or another is only alleviated when you're on the medication. Certainly, but common sense does prevail, and so the patient always has a right, and in this country know that we have rights, and we are blessed in that. And so from that perspective, the patient can say yes or no, I'll think about it, I'll return back tomorrow. Okay, so Dr. Gadotra, let's put in perspective what Dr. Culture just share with us with all the things she talked about with everybody who plays a role in the responsibility and accountability Why is there a crisis? Well, she mentioned a lot of the stakeholders that have interest in 
treating pain. But the reality is it is a shared decision between the patient and the doctor when it comes to what we would call iatrogenic or uh, a side effect of the initial pain prescription. The informed consent that the patient has, uh, that is vital. The patient has to be well-educated, which means the provider has to be well-educated, which means that the provider should be following guidelines set by the American Society of Addiction Medicine. The government has played a key role in doctors addressing pain in the 90s. Yeah, I think you may all remember pain was a fifth vital sign as per the Joint Commission. These are things that have been mandated without necessarily all of the education that should have come with it. So there are plenty of people that could share responsibility. So your question of why, hasn't we, why haven't we gotten control of this issue? Well, instead of laying blame at one entity or another, I think we recognize that the problem is much bigger. It has to be attacked from multiple angles. It has to be attacked from the treatment side, from the prevention side, drug education very early on, uh, patients getting the information from their doctor that these medications should be used in a judicious manner. Uh, and as the good doctor has mentioned, we do have this tendency for what we call instant gratification. We take a pill, we get better. That expectation needs to change as well, that there are certain things that we have to change the measuring stick for. It's not whether there's presence or absence of pain, but what can I do in spite of the pain that needs to also be part of that conversation. So stakeholders need to get involved, all the way from the insurance companies, the regulators, uh, the individual physicians, and the community. That was the one other part, that family members are watching their loved ones spiral and they need to speak up. So there's lots of ways that we can attack this problem. I don't think anyone lacks the courage to do it. We need the resolve to sustain that effort. I think we all recognize that now. So Dr. Cole, let me go back to what I consider to be um, the heart of the matter and what is not talked about enough. You know, I, and I'm gonna use myself as an example. I have not taken medicine in 31 years. I've gone to hospitals uh, where I've had procedures. I refused the medicine. I refused anesthesia. We live in, I believe that the human body, in many perspectives, is different when you're dealing with an aged parent. Um, depending on the age group, it may be a little different. I think the body is built in a way that we can handle more pain than we want to believe. But I think it's be, been dumbed down so much that why allow the body to do what it does best when you got a pill or a shot or a procedure that can handle this for you. So maybe what we need to do is have a conversation about how we look at pain, the mental side of it, and whether we need all these medicines, medicines that are prescribed or whether we're just being exploited by the pharmaceutical and the drug companies that's pushing these medicines because it's a financial boomerang for them. You bring up an excellent point, and it really drives to the core of the issue. Um, pain is a protective mechanism of the body to bring attention to the brain to say something is wrong. So therefore, when you look at uh, therapeutic approaches, solutions, treatment options, we see that they are essentially classified in two different categories. One really targets the mechanism of breakdown. 
So if as a physician, I look at the patient's medical history, I look at the chest complaint, I look at the knowledge base, the training, the expertise I've had, and come up with understanding of how this particular chief complaint came about. So understanding how it, it developed and how it progressed gives me an opportunity to really give appropriate customized protocols that actually address the mechanism of breakdown. There's the other category where there's a slew of different therapeutic solutions which address aspects of the pathology or the chief complaint by listing of symptoms. If the solutions are just chronologically listing or arbitrarily listing and compiling a collection of uh, what is construed as treatment, but it consists of medication for pain, medication for fever, medication for this particular organ, medication for that particular organ, suddenly the interactions of the medications themselves become an issue. I think NIH released, um, uh, or CDC, I believe, released a statistics that essentially they found that 50% of the American population had visited the doctor for chief complaints related to side effects caused by medications. So when we look at the entire aspect of what, differ what differentiates good treatment options versus those that, for instance, bring more side effects to the table, there, there is an aspect of clinician's training, there's an aspect of spending time with the patient to really understand the background and also patient compliance. So let me, let me pick up what Dr. Cocktail just, just explained to, to us. Um, so how do we educate the patient and how, when you're, because listen, you're in a very powerful position where whatever you recommend to your patient could have an impact uplifting or devastating for the rest of their lives. And not only that, Children oftentimes go in the medicine cabinet of their parents and they use this medicine for themselves. There's such a thread to this that what we unleash when we get into where we think that medicine is a cure be all for everything. How do we educate the physician, educate the family that maybe the medication is not the answer? Um, because if you don't start there with the mindset that you believe that this is the only answer, then this situation is going, to get, is going to get worse, not better. Well, it takes time. That's the first thing. Doctors, providers, the nurses have to spend time with the patient, educating on the risks and benefits. I think too often, as you mentioned, we want to have a quick fix. Now, the idea that we talk about safe storage, side effects, the potential for diversion, is part of the conversation. In a 15-minute encounter where five minutes is spent on charting and two minutes is actually spent in face-to-face -face conversations, that really is not enough. The model has to change where we are actually able to spend time with the patient. You mentioned the incredible amount of trust that the patient puts towards the doctor. Uh, there's also trust the other way too, that the patient will be compliant. I think involving family members in that discussion. It may take more time but, you know, that whole thing about an ounce of prevention versus a pound of cure. If we spend a little bit more time up front, maybe we don't deal with the diversion, the side effects. And then the clear expectation, which I think is the underlying part, that the patient is going to get 100% relief. That expectation needs to change as well. Uh, you mentioned that you didn't take any medication for 31 years. Now, technology has advanced. There may have been medications that could have gotten you through some of those things a little bit easier without as much hardship. The idea that we have to present all the options to the patient, I think, is where we are best grounded. Let me, let me, let me interrupt you. 
because, you know, and it's been for the last 31 years. I, I think what people don't realize is that when you do take medicine, I don't care how good it is, even if it's antibiotics, there's a trade-off with the body. There's a price over time that the body pays for taking that medication. And I don't think that's disgusting enough. So my attitude, because, you know, back in December, I had, for the first time in almost 20 years, I had a cold. I was in Dubai. I knew immediately when I was in the cabin that something had entered my body. I knew immediately. I just felt something. And it kept, and it took me a couple of months that I never forget. People around me, my family, 18, all of them were saying, you got to take this. You got to take this medicine. You got to take, you got to go, you got to do this shot. You got to do this shot. And, you know, when you're older, uh, in life, sometimes you get a cold, a symptom, you think it's something you're going to die with because it just won't go away. It starts saying, playing all kind of tricks on your mind. Is this going to ever stop? And then when you think you get a break for, for a few days, and then it comes back with a vengeance. All that psychology plays in, well, maybe I need to go to the doctor. I need to take something because this may be more serious than what it is. But eventually I go with my instincts, what my body has been accustomed to all this life. I've never taken the medicine and my body has already stepped up to the plate. And then one morning I awaken. And I knew it was gone. But you got to have, that takes a lot of discipline and trust of your body and of yourself and your restraint that you're not going to break down after so many years to go back and start taking a medicine again because it triggers something different in your body. I think you bring up an excellent point. The responsibility does lie with the individual. And if the individual is committed to seeing that all the adjunct of therapies, physician's input, expert opinion, all that is supplemental and is really given as a play to them in terms of options. But medications ought to be, in general, looked as a short-term help, short-term bridge to obtain a uh, optimal, uh, optimal clinical outcome, optimal health, and then also aging gracefully, um, looking to longitudinal main uh, maintenance of the health aspect. And that does come with uh, daily decisions, daily decision lifestyle choices, as you mentioned, and also in the conversations with physicians, as well as interdisciplinary aspects of integration between the various different disciplines. We know that interdisciplinary approaches uh, compile a much more comprehensive solution rather than just one axis aspect. So the body is there to um, uh, await, if you will, help to heal itself. It knows what it wants. And it takes time. It takes time. Yeah. And you yeah. can't really defy the laws of gravity, much like you cannot defy the laws of the physiological processes. You can help in certain ways. I think the best thing to do for, as physicians is to really help the body be put in a position to heal, heal itself. itself. I agree. Every medication comes but, 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 but I, I, I want to I make sure, because I, I, I know I want to get a lot in, in this conversation today. Um, uh, some of it is fear. Some of it is a lack of education. Um, and sometimes people just want something that they can get to give them a high, to give them a rush. Are there drugs on the market? Because obviously the FDA approved drugs that sometimes does great harm and many lives are lost and then it's recalled. Are there drugs? What do you say to the pharmaceutical companies and the FDA who approve these drugs and put these drugs in the marketplace, what serious role do they play? The role of the drugs or the role of the FDA? Both. There are drugs that are what I would call psychoactive as side effects, medications to help you sleep, for instance, uh, opiates for pain. They also have psychoactive properties. What do I say to the patient? Let's not use those. 
if what do I say to the patient if we've exhausted every other option, we have to quite frankly inform them of the risks. The FDA, when it comes to approving medications, there are several phases of trials that they have to go through. I think the premise is that options exist. There are risks, even with vitamins. Forget about psychoactive substances. There are risks with anything that you take. So having that frank discussion with the patient, and having a provider that's informed and patient enough and has the time to do that is the first key. The, our model of delivery of medicine sometimes does not allow for that, and that's where I think the first thing has to start. We have to spend time with the patients again. Our providers need to be informed, and they have to be given the liberty to tell the patients, these are the risks, have that discussion. Patients may have to think about it. They may have to discuss it with their family. They may have to come back. Five minutes, that's tough to do. How has the, what has happened, uh, Dr. Cockter, to cause this extraordinary explosion in deaths, suicide uh, with the OPRs? I mean, obviously, our nation has a history of drugs, but it's just something has happened that has triggered it to just to become so exponential all of a sudden. What has changed? Well, I think it's a, you know, it takes time to, to essentially harbor, if you will. It takes um, decades to, um, you know, to um, provide the elements that need to come to the table for that. I think uh, uh, the illicit use of drugs is almost a uh, opportunistic, um, you know, um, a phenomenon which has brought the opioids uh, to the attention of the public sphere. Um, but um, going back to what uh, you know, uh, we were just discussing earlier, um, it is the uh, it is left to the patient's rights and privilege, and it's a privilege to be able to look to see um, to evaluate the treatment options, including quick fix solutions or quick type of of. Um, delay type solutions, which medications, which we know that that's uh, in, uh, in this particular situation what we're dealing with, versus intervention treatments, which may take more compliance from the patient, which may take more, uh, uh, more costly. It takes more sequence of uh, seeing providers and movement and participation. And, um, you know, it does depend on the uh, cognitive predisposition of the individual. It depends on uh, their perspectives in life. And so, um, realizing that um, encouraging uh, patients' consumerism, if you will, uh, to look as healthcare as a very unique sector, it cannot really be compared, you know, to other sectors as we see patient satisfaction. Because we're dealing with a body, we're dealing with experts who are trained, who are there, taking the Hippocratic oath to protect the patient and to help the patient. And the patient um, does need to come on board with um, uh, some um, um, clarification and uh, some uh, trust and acceptance of the variables that are going to actually benefit them longitudinally and their own participation within it. So, I actually want to chime in a little bit because I, I think we can point the finger at a couple things with the explosion, as you mentioned, of the opioid crisis. In terms of prevalence, there are, there are market forces. Fentanyl, for instance, has been implicated coming in through China, through Mexico. It's coming in because there's a market. Uh, it's coming in as what I would call prefabrication products in ways that then are the final processing is done either in Canada or Mexico or in the United States. 
But the idea that the market exists came from two places. One from the medical side where patients were given prescriptions and then the pendulum swung the other way and then providers were cutting them off, becoming scared, operating out of fear. And then the expansion of this market where the actual value of fentanyl on the street is much more than that of heroin, four times the amount. One pound, or excuse me, one kilogram of fentanyl is at least four times more valuable than even heroin at this point. So from the financial aspect of those dealers and distributors, it makes more sense to come up with a product that is longer acting. And, you know, consumers in this regard, those who are addicted to opiates, are going to seek what they would consider to be the best product, even at their own detriment or death. So there is another part to this, uh, that the market in the United States for opiates has exploded. Why that's exploded? Uh, I think on one hand, healthcare provides one, one finger where we could point towards the providers of the actual pharmaceuticals would be another. Government also can probably share some blame as well. Um, and ultimately the patients and their families also have recognized that they're falling and they need to take attention. And human nature is that we will hide our failures. We will conceal them. We will wait until the very end before we get help. And some of that also plays a role in why people seek treatment so late after things have already fallen apart or rock bottom has occurred. You know, um, Dr. Cocker, you are a dentist. And, you know, I want to, I'd like to take our viewers and our listeners inside your practice where you have to make a tough decision for a patient because we're looking what I'm looking for is a model practice and a real situation that you face and how you deal with it where in the long run the patient gets exactly what they need and it doesn't compromise your ethics and your Hippocratic Oath of Medicine in your clinic. So give us an example of how your practice is a model and what you do differently when it comes to these issues. Certainly. So i like to just preface with the fact that um, the last time I probably wrote an opioid prescription was in dental school. And so, yes, you know, I do laser surgery. I do also other types of surgeries that are extractions and even um, more complex uh, um, pathologies, uh, removal of biopsies, etc. Um, but um, having said that, um, I'll give an example specifically. We also treat temporomandibular disorders within the uh, at the institute, and so um, some of the cases that have uh, come, actually, as a matter of fact, a lot of the bulk of the cases that come through have already had appliances and uh, treatment options uh, that have failed or have uh, have partially. Um, stagnated or have given them a certain amount of outcome without longitudinal stability. And so um, some of those patients have come with essentially history of opioids for that particular condition. And one of the uh, criteria for, uh, for me as a clinician is to essentially elicit, to, to, to give them option, clinical options with appliances or depending on the mechanism of, of as I said, of the condition, uh, which would eliminate the opioid. And so my um, approach is to once the condition is diagnosed and the treatment plan is rendered, um, I essentially require the patient to be titrated off the opioids um, even early at the beginning stages of the treatment because what I want to do is I want to give them 
First of all, I want them to help achieve healing and stability, and I would like that to be without any type of uh, um, additional medications or other uh, forms of longitudinal dependency. Whether it's an antibiotic, which is certainly uh, you know different category, or whether it is a uh, an opioid or even Botox, let's say. Should, should we think about when you think about opioids? Because oftentimes opioids, we don't want to associate it with mental illness somebody who's a schizophrenic, um, and also dealing with people who have, uh, even with kids who are hyperactive. I mean, it doesn't seem as though there's much to show just how effective these drugs are in, in the long run, and especially when you medicate people for depression. Should we start looking for other alternatives that we should consider? If you're referring to the use of psychotropics. Yes, psychotropics. Uh, for the treatment of chronic mental illness. Uh, I would say that the science has progressed. Uh, the idea that we have options of SSRIs, SNRIs, novel antidepressants. Uh, the statistics show that if you start a patient who has clinical depression on an antidepressant, you have a 60% chance of re achieving remission with the first trial. Maybe with the second trial, you might get a bump to 70%. And if you can't in the first three trials, then you label it treatment-resistant depression, and then you have to be a, a bit more aggressive. The idea that medications are the catch-all, I want to caution against. They're one aspect to rebalance what we would find as certain neurochemicals that have been found to be depleted. But cognitive behavior therapy for individuals with depression uh, for individuals with PTSD, uh, you know, as well, you could utilize not just trauma-based therapies, but CBT as well. So that would be another complement to that, as well as exposure training. And probably there are a host of other psychotherapies and behavioral modification techniques that could be utilized to help the patient. But they have to be used in conjunction. The idea that someone needs to take an addictive substance for a chronic medical condition, that's generally a bad idea. But the idea that we could have that conversation with the patient when they're stable for, let's say, someone who's been on an SSRI, like Zoloft or Prozac, just as examples, uh, after they've achieved remission would be the time to have that conversation of whether or not it makes sense to taper that dose down. What you don't want to do is fall into the trap of making this, and this is hard for humans, an emotional decision. Mm. This should be based on logic. Uh, if someone has demonstrated improvement, then we have to examine why that improvement occurred. And if they have some reservations with continuing the medication, explore why that's the case and work with them. Uh, I think in the end, patients have autonomy to make good and bad decisions. That's one of the reasons why we're in a lot of the crises that we're facing. But in the end, we have to respect their wishes as long as it's not causing harm to others. You know, finally, um, Dr. Cocteau, I, I just want to wrap with an aspect of this that we have not covered today that is also very important to you and this discussion. Um, I um, recently saw a study uh, in the American Journal of Health Economy, uh, which was just released in the last uh, year or so, um, which essentially um, concluded that um, from 
they looked at uh, from 2004 to 2000 and uh, I believe 16. Um, they um, saw that the rates of uh, prescriptions uh, were written mostly by GPs. And uh, they also looked at the academic training. And they found that the prescription rates um, for opioids were inversely proportional to the initial medical training. Mm. And that is very interesting because they found that um, those graduating uh, their initial medical training program uh, at high tier schools and leading institutions were found to be writing significantly less opioid prescriptions than those graduating at, uh, by, uh, from third tier academic training medical institutions. And so um, they provided additional statistics and, um, and some variables as well, which are quite uh, impressive. And so we really are left to conclude that uh, academic training and curriculum updates in institutions across the country would render a much more improved outcome in particularly clinical outcome as well as patient compliance and, um, and partnership with, the, uh, with healthcare professionals. That is significant. The same question to you? Absolutely, I agree. The more training you have, the more likely you no, are. I, I, I'm talking anything that we have not covered that oh. you felt we should have discussed today. Uh, well, I think the other part that maybe we need to think about in terms of prevention of overdoses was the Narcan. That would be another issue where Narcan availability in the schools, Narcan availability at uh, every treatment center, you know, whether it's primary care, dentistry, or substance abuse centers. You know, you're going to encounter opioid overdoses in almost any setting. So having at least some folks trained with that in most settings would be important. Um, to not operate with fear when it would be the second thing. We can't be afraid of these, this crisis. We have to be able to gather the information and attack it from all different angles. You know, I cannot thank you both enough for a, just an extraordinary discussion. And we covered so many aspects of it. Um, and I'm sure our audience is gonna get so much out of this conversation. I wanna thank you for what you do and much respect. I'm Armstrong Williams, thank you for watching this, this edition of the Strongcast with your host, Armstrong Williams.